This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. An angry wave of resentment in Detroit's black community prompted the city council to air the many complaints of police misconduct. It was a bitter session punctuated by shouts, epithets, and continuing charges of racism and police terrorism. It's January 1973. The city council calls a public forum on a topic that attracts so many angry Detroiters, they had to move it to the Ford Auditorium. The issue? Stress. The Detroit Police Department's undercover decoy unit. for hearings on numerous occasions that they ducked it and they sidestepped it because it was a hot political issue. Everybody on the Detroit Common Council needs to be put to the necessity of taking a position on stress. Black people want stress abolished. By now, its undercover officers have killed 16 men, 15 of them black. But the police commissioner points out that crime is down. And not everybody wants to get rid of the controversial police unit. Police Commissioner John Nichols attempted to respond to the crowded hall, but he was shouted down. It is not my intent to stand before you today to attempt to justify the lawful rights of a police officer in effecting an arrest. They need no such justification. until you recognize you're wasting part of that two hours. This meeting marks a turning point. In just a few months, Detroiters will have the chance to decide the fate of stress and of the entire city. You will act on this or you will not have a future in city government. This is election year 73. We don't intend to let this one pass without an attempt to change the life of the city. One, two, three, now! Last episode, a crime lab technician took down a notorious stress officer with the help of a few cat hairs. Today on the show, Black people in Detroit have had enough. It's 1973, an election year, and they're backing a brash new candidate for mayor. This city needs a mayor, a leader, not a commanding officer. This city needs a uniter, not a cutting edge. I am capable of leading that struggle. I'm Soraya Shockley. Welcome to Crime Town. The stress unit has killed 10 people, nine of them black. We had the bad guys running scared, which is just where the fuck we want Sometimes we have to shoot them. I don't half-step nothing. When I tell you I'm going to get you, (laughs) take it to the bank. Black people learn how to talk back to white people. 
in Detroit and not be afraid. To understand how stress became the central issue of the 1973 mayoral election, you need to meet a 15-year-old boy named Ricardo Buck. He was kind of on the quiet side. He was really handsome. He had real big, pretty eyes. This is Almira Mathis. Ricardo Buck was her nephew. His friends called him Buck. So it was like five of them, his best friends. They used to always come up to my house and they would uh, sing The Temptations. They were, yeah, they sounded pretty good though. They did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's, I can't think of the song they used to sing. I could fly like a bird in the sky. What's the thing? The guys would wear those, like, gabardine shirts, buttoned down. And you know how they was wearing naturals back there? So his was still, it wasn't a large natural. It was kind of short. You had a little baby fro? Yeah, baby fro. Yeah, that's what it is, a baby fro. <laughs> I got a picture of them. Okay. I framed it. And that's his last picture. So it was terrible. But you don't know about teenagers, what they might do. Did they need some money or why? You know, what, you know I don't know. All the neighbors knew us by name. We hustled together. And people knew from the outside, you can't mess with him without messing with the rest of them. Gino Fortune was friends with Ricardo Buck. One night, they had just finished playing basketball at the North End Family Center with another friend, Craig Mitchell. We were all on the gym steps. It was summertime. It was hot. All the kids were hanging out, you know. That's when um, the white guy comes staggering down, John and I. The guy had a gas can in his hand. Would you first think that his car had stopped somewhere? We knew he had no business in the neighborhood, period. So we look at it, he was trying to get direction. He was wearing regular clothes, but he had a big shiny watch on. He had a gold chain on his neck. I'm thinking, you know, that he was asking for it. Asking for what? For us to come and take his stuff. And uh, we were just talking to him at first. We were just talking to him, trying to get some, you know, see where he coming from and see was he drunk or what, you know. What were you saying to him? Uh, Where you come from or where you're going or where your car is, you know. We were all in his face. We had him surrounded, more or less. But... We didn't get a chance to take nothing from that guy because he lunged at work. That's when all of us beat him down. I mean, hey, who does this guy think he is? He just jumped on Buck and we were just talking, you know, and we kicked his ass. 
And then he said, police officer. He kept hollering, police officer. We didn't see no police cars. All we see was these white guys jumping out the bushes and everywhere. You would think you're in a war or something, because it was like Vietnam out there. Buck tried to run. And I seen him drop. I ran back up towards the gym to the steps. Boom, boom. And the sparks was ricocheting off the street. And I'm hearing gunshots going by me, zing by my ear. So they were trying to get me too. And I see fire hopping off Greg's back. And he fell down beside the car in front of the gym. Everything happened so fast. I was more scared. I, I mean, hey, here I'm that close to getting got too, you know? I was the boss, you know, which means that usually my job would be the same job that a father would have. Benjamin Holloway was the director of the North End Family Center, where the shooting happened. Over the years, he kept a close eye on Craig and Buck. Craig and Buck, they were just mischief kids. To me, they weren't really bad kids. They was one of my, my specials, you know, uh... Why were they special? Because they always did something wrong. The night of the shooting, Holloway was at home when his phone rang. When I got the call, I couldn't believe it. A white man shot Craig and Buck. Craig and Buck? I couldn't picture that. What do you mean? You know, so we dropped whatever we was doing. Holloway drove to the center to find it surrounded by police tape. When we get back, it was 50 police lined up, uh, locked in arms. And I tried to go to, to Cray, and they wouldn't let me go over there. You know, I mean, they got mean, you know, and, and I, I'm trying to hold my emotion. Craig was laying, I tried to go see him. You know, I'm like, what the hell? What's wrong with you? You know, I, I kind of like... I kind of, like, lost it. Because I'm looking at him, he's he's laying there. We didn't really find out till the next day that the police shot Craig and Buck. So we kind of like, what? The police? Elmira Mathis, Ricardo Buck's aunt, says that no one from the police ever came to notify her family. Who does that? That's what you do? You take a 15-year-old life and you don't even go to the family with no kind of explanation? If they had cared, they would have came to the house and said something to my sister. Nobody never came. It felt like racist, you know, white men killing another black with no concern. They didn't care. They didn't care. The undercover stress officer who shot Craig and Buck, his name was Richard Warbeck. 
the kind of people out on those streets. They're brutal, they're violent, and if you've been a victim of a crime, you'll understand how little regard they have for you or your life, and they'll take it from you in a minute if they can. This audio is from an interview Warbeck gave for a documentary called Detroit Under Stress. I knew that the only way to uh, prevent crime was you have to attack it. You have to be proactive, and you have to go after the bad guys. How can a white guy stand out in a predominantly black community but still fit in? What if you're a motorist that ran out of gas and you're carrying a gas can? That was my MO. I'd walk with a gas can and hope, you know, somebody would come and rob me. And that's exactly what Warbeck did that night in front of the North End Family Center. I was passing John R. in Belmont, and these two guys were sitting up on a, on a step, and they both run up on me and start hitting me with, with the pole and pushing me down. Warbeck says Craig and Buck attacked him with a steel pole from a broken badminton racket. They took my watch right off of my hand, and they started to run. And I drew my weapon and I fired. I fired three shots this way. I fired three shots that way. And this guy went down. Went up to the guy, he was dead. And my watch was underneath his body. And I just happened to walk across the street and look down by a parked car and there was the second guy. He was dead. It's always easy to just blame it on the police when the police are interjecting themselves into the middle of of a violent uh, situation. It wasn't until a couple days later I found out that they were actually juveniles, but uh, police officers, (laughs) they have every right to protect themselves. The march was called to proclaim a state of emergency in Detroit. It was organized in protest against a special Detroit police unit called STRESS. Black leaders of the march say the killings amounted to execution without trial. Black Detroit will no longer subject itself to the suppression brutality that we are now undergoing. We are moving for total freedom. Several days after Officer Warbeck killed Ricardo Buck and Craig Mitchell, community leaders called for a march. Elmira Mathis and the rest of Buck's family were front and center. We walked all the way down Woodward Avenue. We was on the front line. There was so many people behind us. Oh, it, was, it was beautiful. Just to know that we had their support to abolish this stress. But abolishing stress wasn't going to be easy. It would be another year before Police Commissioner John Nichols was shouted down by that angry crowd at the Ford Auditorium. We can expect police conduct at least to be professional. Not long after that city council forum, Commissioner Nichols, the mastermind behind stress, set his eyes on a higher office, City Hall. 
mayoral campaign has pitted a law and order candidate against a state senator seeking to become the Auto City's first black mayor. Nichols' opponent was a man named Coleman Young. The police department needs to be reorganized and made more responsive to the citizens. I'll eliminate stress as one of my first moves. What about Police Commissioner Nichols? Well, I certainly think uh, the commissioner, who is responsible for stress, who's responsible for the abrasive attitude of the police department toward many of our citizens, has got to go. Commissioner Senator Coleman Young uh, today announced that he's a candidate, and he said if elected, the first thing he'd do is fire you as commissioner and abolish stress. <laughs> I don't think either one of them comes as a total surprise to you. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Detroit mayoral race pits a black against a white. John Nichols, a 54-year-old police commissioner who is known as a tough cop and who stresses crime control, is running against Coleman Young, a 55-year-old state senator who has a reputation as a militant fighter for the black cause. Mayoral candidate Coleman Young had cut his teeth as a union organizer in the auto plants. Here he is in 1952, testifying before the House Un-American Activities Committee during the Red Scare. Uh, you've told us that you were the executive secretary of the National Negro Congress. That word is Negro. You said Negro. I think you're mistaken. Well, I hope you'll speak more clearly. Um, I'll appreciate it if you will not argue with counsel. Not my purpose to argue. The word, but, uh, As a Negro, I resent the slurring of the name of my race. In the 60s, black people in Detroit elected Coleman to three terms as state senator. And now, he was running for mayor. He was Coleman. He said what he had to say. And uh, he'd learned it in the streets early on, and he continued to do it. This is journalist Reamer Tyson. He covered the 1973 election for the Detroit Free Press. You know, his favorite word was motherfucker. Everybody was a motherfucker. He used to... common swear words and so forth to get his point across a lot. Well, that's bull. And who the f*** do you think you are to come in here and cross-examine me? Voters know that Coleman Young's blackness in a city half-black is what this race is all about. The optimistic view is that Young, as mayor, would help raise the social and economic status of Detroit's blacks and strengthen the peaceful coexistence the city needs to save itself. The pessimistic view is that as mayor, Young would give Detroit away to blacks. It was, it was well understood on the street that this election, the 1973 election, would be a watershed election. Richard McKnight was John Nichols' campaign coordinator. And as he remembers it, race was key to the 1973 election. The number of white voters was decreasing. It was very likely that this was the last election that the white people would control. 
So in the in the campaign itself, what like what was your strategy? What was the Nichols campaign strategy? To produce as many white votes as possible. So Coleman needed to produce as many black votes as possible, and he knew just where to start. We were holding a political rally for him, and he walked in through the, the door, and you know it was just like mayhem. This is Katrina Chapman, and the first time she saw Coleman Young speak was at her church. He walked in just, you know, shaking people's hand, doing what most politicians do, but it was just something a little different. He knew people in the audience, you know, and his, his motions were very much like most black men in the community, you know. He didn't just go, you know, shake a hand, he would just, hey! And he would call them by name, and he seemed like he was one of us. And he walked down the middle aisle onto the pulpit. As we entered a countdown in what is probably the most important election that the people of this city have faced in many years. I've been across this city. My qualifications are superior. He was so handsome, just a, a good-looking brother, you know, and he carried himself like a black man who was cool, you know, who loved his people more than anything. I have been presenting a program to all the people of the city of Detroit because I recognize that all of the city of Detroit is in deep trouble unless we reverse the polarization, the trend toward economic deterioration that presently plagues our city. There was euphoria, clapping, the music, African-American choir that was very good, dead on it. So all of that mixed together, we were energized to make change. In a short period of time, we were, you know, passing out our leaflets, talking to people, excited about Coleman Young. Talked to a lot of different people, black and white. There were still some white people in the area. But mostly we talked to black people who were supportive. It was very well organized. We felt we were going to win. On the eve of Election Day, both candidates went on television to make one last appeal to voters. Well, I think the first thing you do is to continue the aggressive fight against crime that, that I began as police commissioner. I think that the pall of crime drives businesses out of the city. I think a fear of crime in the neighborhoods forces our uh, citizens to move out to the suburbs. The basic problem, as you know, is of an economic nature. Uh, crime and the other problems are spinoff. All, I think, can be traced to the basic polarization that has characterized urban America. If a uh, Detroit goes down the drain, black and white go down the drain together. You can't tell the difference between black and white in a sewer. Polarized as it is, Detroit has lost much of its tax base and much of its appeal. Tomorrow the voters must decide which candidate can help blacks better themselves and at the same time convince whites to stay. November 6th, 1973, Election Day. 
As the polls opened this morning, the contest was expected to be a close one. Last-minute opinion polls showed a large group of voters still undecided. Reporters caught the candidates as they left their polling stations. I voted for the best man. How do you feel this morning? Not nervous. How do you feel? Confident. I'm looking forward to a massive expression on the part of people of this city, uh, both black and white, uh, that it's time to turn our backs on polarization and division to get together and rebuild this city. Late that night, Coleman Young stepped onto a stage at the Detroit Hilton. With 99% of the vote in, we are 15,000 But I'm going to on equality for everybody. Elmira Mathis, Ricardo Buck's aunt, had been waiting for this day. He was definitely excited. We were so glad he got in office because he knew that he was going to get real distressed. So had the community center director, Benjamin Holloway. I was relieved that he was in because we believed that he was going to do what he said. And that you will faithfully discharge the duties of the office of mayor of the city of Detroit to the best of your ability, so help you God. I do. There's a new excitement in Detroit generated by the promise and hope of a new mayor. Coleman Young is the city's first black chief executive elected by a narrow margin. As Coleman settled into City Hall, he sent a clear message to his constituents. There's a new mayor in town. Uh, I said when I opened my campaign that stress would be eliminated. I say that now. Stress will go. Any acronym relating to stress will go. Any stress-oriented decoy operation will go. This is for real. Coleman Young had taken on the cops and won. But now the city was facing another problem, the criminals. He throws a, a bag on the table, just like that. I say, what's that, sugar, flour? He said, no, that's dope. That's next week on Crime Town. The interview with Richard Warbeck in this episode appears courtesy of David Van Wee's documentary, Detroit Under Stress. To learn more about David's film and to find out how to watch it, visit DetroitUnderStress.com. Crimetown is Mark Smerling and Zach Stewart-Pontier. This season is made in partnership with Gimlet Media and Spotify. It's produced by Rob Zipko, John White, Samantha Lee, and me, Soraya Shockley. The senior producer is Drew Nellis. Editing by Mark Smerling and Zach Stewart-Pontier. Editing help from Alex Bloomberg and Caitlin Kinney. Fact-checking by Jennifer Blackman. This episode was mixed, sound-designed, and scored by Kenny Kusiak. Original music this season composed by Homer Steinweiss. We recorded some original music at Rust Belt Studios in Detroit in partnership with Detroit Sound Conservancy. 
special thanks to Carlton Goals and Maurice Piranahead Heard. Additional music by John Cusiak and Kenny Cusiak, and additional mixing by Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Politicians in My Eyes by Death. Our credit music this week is Still in My Heart, written and performed by Detroit Soul Ambassador Melvin Davis. In hopes that maybe someday you'll come back Archival research by Brennan Reese. Archival footage courtesy of the Shrine of the Black Madonna of the Pan-African Orthodox Christian Church, the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University, and the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History, Show art and design by James Cabrera and Elise Harvin. Check out our website, crimetownshow.com, for bonus content, a transcript for this episode, and a full list of credits. To learn more about stress, check out Mark Benelli's piece, The Fire Last Time, in the New Republic. Thanks to the Detroit Free Press, Peter Batia, Jim Schaefer, Mary Schrader, Mary Wallace, Melissa Sampson, Sheila Cockrell, Barbara Rose Collins, Gail McKnight, Jacqueline Baird, Jeremoji Minalik Kamathi, Kehinde Briggs, everyone at the Shrine, including the choir, the Detroit Historical Society, Larry Mongo, Kirk Chaffetz, Aaron Hennigan, and everyone who shared their stories with us. Detroit is an amazing place, and we're honored to tell a small part of its story. Alex Bloomberg is the podfather. Every time I walk into his office, he says, Well, that's And who the do you think you are to come in here and cross-examine me? 